Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, we are going to be devoting our attention this morning to verses 3 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1, I do want to say to you this morning, happy Reformation Sunday. We are celebrating here together this morning the 505th anniversary of when a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, he nailed on October the 31st of 1517 his 95 theses to the castle church doors in Wittenberg, Germany, and thus launching a movement that would turn the world upside down. And it began what would become known as the Protestant Reformation, but more importantly, the recovery of the gospel. That was at the heart of the Reformation. That's what we're celebrating here together this morning. And that recovery of the gospel, it would later be summarized in five Latin phrases known as the five solas of the Reformation. That word sola, as you know, meaning alone or only. Now, the Reformers themselves, these men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, these men, they they didn't come up with these five Latin phrases, but they did develop over time as a way of sort of capturing what the Reformation was all about and really what the gospel is all about. And those five solas, those five Latin phrases are sola gratia, meaning that justification is by grace alone, sola fide, through the means or instrument of faith alone, solus Christus, meaning it's based on Christ alone, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, sola scriptura, as revealed and taught with the final authority of scripture alone. Those are the five solas of the Reformation. And over the last five years now, here as a church, we have been slowly working our way through one of these solas each year on Reformation Sunday, and today it is my joy to conclude a five-part, or we could say five-year, sermon series with you. And this morning, we are looking together at what is really the culmination of it all. It's really the pinnacle. It's really, you could say, the summit. In fact, we're looking at the one sola in which all the other four solas find their ultimate meaning and purpose. They find their true significance, and that is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. When the reformers proclaimed that glory belongs to God alone, they understood that this sola is the one sola 
sort of the glue that holds all the other solas together. It is the center drawing all the other solas into this unified whole. If I had to illustrate it, you might say the glory of God is the sun around which all the other four solas orbit. It is the centerpiece. It is the culmination and the climax of them all. In other words, soli deo gloria is the necessary implication of the other four solas. The necessary implication. What do you mean by that, pastor? Because, friends, it holds forth the reality that our entire salvation and really the aim and goal of all human history, all creation is the glory of God alone. That's the essence of Christianity. That's the heart of the Reformation. It isn't man-centered. It's God-centered. It is all about the glory of God. Glory to God alone. And it is this final solo that we come to here this morning. So my task is no small feat. <laughs> so the way to approach it is first to define it. What is soli deo gloria? What, what do we mean by that? What do the reformers mean by that? And then second, why does it matter? And it doesn't if it's not what the Bible teaches. And so we're going to look at several passages, and we're going to spend the majority of our time, though, however, here in Ephesians chapter 1, really in the second half of the sermon. But I want you to look at it here with me now, Ephesians chapter 1. Let me ask you to, if you're able, stand with me as we honor together the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he had set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. You can be seated. What was the reformers' beef with the Roman Catholic Church during the 16th century? Or 
why did we need a Reformation at all? It's important to note that the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, and even still today, didn't deny the importance of Scripture. They didn't deny the importance of faith. They didn't deny the importance of grace or of Christ. No, they would affirm that you cannot be saved without these things. But if we were to press the matter on that little five-letter word alone, sola, sola fide, sola gratia, we would soon find, friends, we are worlds apart. Worlds apart. For example, Scripture alone, sola fide, the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't deny the importance of Scripture. They would say it is authoritative for faith and practice, absolutely. But they would also say that that authority is equal alongside church tradition and the pulp. And yet the Reformers came along and said, no, it is Scripture alone that is the final authority. Or take sola fide, faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church would say we are justified by faith, but we're justified by faith and works. And the Reformers said, no, we are justified through faith alone, apart from any works, Apart from any merit, no, it is sola scriptura, it is sola fide, it is sola gratia, it is solus Christus. So it all hinges on that little word alone. Now, what does that mean then when we come to this fifth sola, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone? Would the Roman Catholic Church actually deny That all glory goes to God alone? Would they really say that the glory goes to someone or something else? So here's what I mean, church, when I say that the the phrase soli deo gloria is the necessary implication. The necessary implication of all the other four solas. What do you mean by that, pastor? Here's what I mean. If my Justification before God, if my right standing with God is contingent in any way upon me or upon what I do or upon my merits or my contribution, then who gets the glory? Well, maybe God, some. Maybe it's 50-50. Maybe it's 80-20. Maybe it's 99-1. Maybe God, some, but so do I. So do I. But the Reformers understood that salvation is a work of God. Meaning, it is God alone who does it all from beginning to end. So if my justification before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from anything that I do, then it ensures that all glory goes to God alone and not to me. He gets it all, I get none. And church, that's what's at stake here. Robbing God of the glory that he alone deserves. So this is no small thing. So first then, let me just begin here by unpacking that a bit more. What is soli deo gloria? What do the reformers intend when they champion this notion of God's glory alone? Question number one. 
If you're taking notes, number one, what is soli deo gloria? We're going to look at a few passages here before we get to Ephesians chapter 1. But the first thing we have to do is we have to define what do we mean when we say the glory of God. <laughs> That's no easy task. What is, how do you define that? How do you define glory? How do you define the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Well, the Bible speaks of God's glory in two primary ways. There's two ways we talk about the glory of God. The first is what we might call God's intrinsic glory or His inherent glory, meaning that this is the glory that God Himself possesses in His divine nature. His glory. The Hebrew word kavod, it means heaviness, it means significance. So God's glory then is the sum total of his magnificence, of his beauty. It is all of his infinite perfections. It is the awesome radiance and splendor of His divine attributes. That's the glory of God. And so when we define God's intrinsic glory, we're defining God. We're defining His Godness. This is His very essence. This is His very nature. He is glory. Isaiah chapter 6, if you remember the prophet Isaiah, he sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. And what does he see? Verse 1 Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and with one calling to the other saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his what? Glory. So when we speak of God's intrinsic glory, we are referring then to the excellence of His divine nature, the radiance of His perfections. He is holy, holy, holy. He is perfect wisdom. He is perfect love. He is perfect power. He is perfect righteousness. That's His glory. And the accumulation of all of those perfections... Of all of those perfect attributes constitutes God's intrinsic glory. And we cannot add to that glory. We cannot take away from that glory. God is infinitely glorious. That's the first way we have to talk about God's glory. His intrinsic glory. It's the sum total of His perfections. He is glory. From all eternity past. With or without you. But there's a second way, the second way to talk about God's glory, not only is He infinitely glorious in His intrinsic glory, the second way we might call it God's ascribed glory or His attributed glory. What is God's ascribed glory? And here we move into the realm of big, ultimate kinds of questions like, why does anything exist at all? Why, why am I here on planet Earth? Why are there mountains? 
Why are there people? Why are there planets? Why are there galaxies? Why is there a universe? Why does anything exist at all? You ever ask those kinds of big questions? You should. You should. That brings us to the second way we talk about God's glory, His ascribed glory. This is the glory that is due Him. The glory that we give to God. This is the glory owed to the Creator by His creation. And it is the only rightful response to a God who is infinitely glorious. That in response to His intrinsic glory, we would render to Him ascribed glory. For example, Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of of God. The reason stars exist, the reason planets and moons exist, the reason the vastness of our universe exists is for the glory of God. They are declaring His glory. Or Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7, the Lord says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. In other words, the universe and everything in it mainly is about the glory of God. That's why he made it. That's why it exists. Or Romans chapter 11, look there, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul has just been elaborating for ten and a half chapters on the glory of God in the gospel. And then he says in verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Why do we give glory to God forever? Paul says because all things are from him. He's the source of all things. All things are through him. He upholds and sustains all things. And all things are to him, meaning everything that exists, exists for him and for his glory. And therefore, to him be the glory forever. Amen. All glory to God alone. Friends, the glory of God is what we call a paradigm shift. This is paradigm shifting. Because it changes the way you see everything. It changes the way you see this world. It changes the way you see why you're here. That the universe is a stage upon which God has designed to manifest His glory. John Calvin said it like this, The world was no doubt made that it might be a theater of divine glory. Mankind isn't the center of the universe. God is. And he alone deserves the glory of all things. This is his ascribed glory. Why do I exist? Friend, you exist for the glory of God. But there's still a question we have to answer. Okay. What then does that reality have to do with my salvation in Christ? And not only that... What exactly did the reformers intend with that phrase, soli deo gloria? What is to the glory of God alone? 
And here's chiefly what the reformers meant, that God has tied the fullest manifestation, the most comprehensive, most complete manifestation of His glory to our salvation in Christ. Our salvation in Christ is the fullest manifestation of the glory of God. Yes, the heavens are declaring that glory, and we should see it, we should celebrate it, we should behold it, but far eclipsing God's glory in creation, far outweighing that, the very pinnacle of His glory is revealed in His glorious work of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation of His people. Which leads us now to our second question, and really the second half of the sermon. Here it is. Number two. How then does our salvation in Christ give glory to God alone? How does our salvation in Christ give glory to God alone? That's really what the Reformers meant by soli deo gloria. That's what's intended in those five solas. That because our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, therefore all glory must go to God alone. But none of that matters if it's not what the Bible teaches. The The Reformation means nothing if it isn't biblical. And I think nowhere do we see this doctrine of soli deo gloria more fully on display than right here in Ephesians chapter 1. Because what the Apostle Paul is doing for us here is he's laying out from the very outset here of this letter the fact that our entire salvation from beginning to end is by God alone, meaning it is according to His plan, it is His work, it is His doing, and it is for the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. And so what I want to do then in our remaining time is I just want to walk very briefly through this passage. We're going to be brief. I'm only able to skim the surface here and show you six ways in which we see this doctrine of soli deo gloria in verses 3 to 14. Again, briefly. So that by the end of this sermon, you would be able to say with me, glory be to God alone. First, let me just make a couple of observations here to set the context. First, notice in verses 3 to 16 or 14. These verses here are a sentence of praise, a sentence of praise. Beginning there, notice in verse 3, and going all the way down through verse 14, the Apostle Paul, he begins his letter here by just exploding into praise. Verses 3 to 14 are a doxology. They are a poem of praise to God for all the blessings, all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. In fact, notice, while these verses are broken here for us into five sentences in our English translation, they're actually only one sentence in the original Greek. Over 200 words. So they form one long sentence of praise. There's no commands given here. There's no imperatives to be obeyed. This is all indicatives. This is all what God has done in Christ. And Paul is simply Worshipping, he's simply praising God. Look there, verse 3. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul says God is to be blessed. God is to be praised because he has blessed us in Christ. So verses 3 to 14 are a sentence of praise. 
That's the first thing you need to see. Here's the second observation. Verses 3 to 14 reveal an eternal plan for the glory of God. An eternal plan for the glory of God. Meaning that before the world ever began, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had a plan. They set in motion an eternal plan. Look at verse 4. Before the foundation of the world. Verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. Verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time. Verse 11, working all things according to the counsel of His will. So, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had a plan. And that plan was simply this. I will glorify myself. That's the plan. I will glorify my name. And here's how I'm going to do it. Here's how I'm going to accomplish this plan. Through the salvation and the adoption of sinners and rebels into my family. Through my son, whereby I transform them into sons of God. That's the plan. That was the plan established before the foundation of the world. And then that plan was carried out by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about here. And what was the ultimate aim and purpose of this entire plan? Friends, it was the glory of God. It's a very God-centered plan. It's not mainly about you. In fact, he mentions the purpose of this plan three times. Did you notice that repeated phrase as we read it? Verse 6, look there. Why did God set this plan into motion? Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, why save sinners in this way? Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, What is the end goal of God's plan of redemption? Here it is in verse 14. To the praise of His glory. Why did God in eternity past plan to save sinners through His Son Jesus Christ? Friends, it was to reveal the glory of God's grace and to give all glory to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. And so then, how does my salvation in Christ give all glory to God alone? Well, briefly, notice six spiritual blessings Paul lists here in this doxology of praise. Six spiritual blessings we have in Christ that give all glory to God alone. Number one, He chose you for salvation. Verse four, even as He, God, chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So Paul says that these spiritual blessings here, all of the blessings listed in this passage, they are ours by virtue of the fact that God chose us. 
In other words, if you are in Christ, your salvation is ultimately to be traced back not to your choice of God, but to God's choice of you. He chose you for salvation. Look at verse 4. What Paul does here is, is he takes us back before the foundation of the world. And he gives us a glimpse here into eternity past. Look at verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So think about that. Before any star existed, before the earth existed, in eternity past, way back in the inscrutable mind of God, God Almighty set his electing love on you. Or verse 5, in love, he predestined us. Meaning, he predetermined our eternal destiny. That's what that means. This is the doctrine of sovereign election. And why did he do it? What was the purpose of his sovereign election of us, Paul gives us here two reasons why he chose us. First of all, look at verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. Verse 4, holy and blameless, that means our eternal, perfected, glorified state. So, beloved, God chose you in eternity past for eternity future. So, as Paul gives us here a glimpse into the eternal purposes of God, he says that God determined your salvation before you were ever born so that you would be with him for all eternity. He wanted you with him. Before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him, to enjoy his glory. That's the first reason he chose you. Here's the second reason. His sovereign choice, here's why he chose you, wasn't based on some foreseen merit in you, but according to his sovereign will. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It was simply based on his good pleasure. Or look at verse 11. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. His sovereign choice wasn't based on any foreseen merit in us, but solely based on his sovereign will. Meaning there was nothing, there was nothing in us that moved the heart of God. There was nothing in us that attracted God to us or to himself. That's how we choose things. You go to the grocery store, what do you, you pick out the fruit that looks the best? You go to your favorite restaurant, why? Because it has the best food, it's the best atmosphere. You, you, you pick your car based on what's attractive, based on what you like. But God's sovereign choice wasn't like that. No, it wasn't 
It wasn't conditional. It was unconditional. Why? Because God's cho- his choice was made before you ever existed, friend. It was pure grace. And so allow me to be clear, no matter how you want to slice this, those words, he chose us in verse 4, they cannot be turned around to mean we chose him. He is the subject, us is the direct object. No, Paul is crystal clear that God is the one who took the initiative in our salvation. He is absolutely sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Yes, we must believe in Christ to be saved, but even our faith as a believer is the result of his sovereign election of us unto salvation before the foundation of the world. So listen, if you are in Christ... God chose you to receive salvation when he didn't have to. He was under no obligation. He could have left you in your sin. And he would have been perfectly just to do it. And yet, in his sovereign grace, he chose you. He set his love on you. He determined to save you, beloved Give all praise and glory to God alone for your salvation. He chose you. Here's the second, the second blessing. He adopted you as children. He adopted you. Look at verses 5 and 6. Back up to the end of verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So why should all glory go to God alone for your salvation? Because God has predestined, he has predetermined in love to adopt you through Jesus Christ. Verse 5, look there, Paul, he goes back again to this idea of God's choice before the foundation of the world. And now he takes it one step further. And he says, not only did God choose you for salvation, but he predestined you to become his very own children. Meaning, he decided to bring us into a relationship with himself that could best be described here with this picture, this metaphor of adoption. Most of us, probably familiar with the picture of adoption. Maybe some of you are adopted. But in adoption, a couple adopts a child formally, legally, voluntarily, receiving that child as their very own. Though that child isn't biologically theirs, loved as if they were their own, becoming their child. And Paul says, friends, that's what's happened to you in the spiritual realm. You've been adopted. And what was his motivation to do this? Look there at the end of verse 4. In love, in love, he predestined us. So the fact that you are a child of God, if indeed you are, is owing to his sovereign love. And what is even more incredible, more amazing, is when you consider who you were prior to your adoption. Enemies of God, objects of his wrath, Headed for condemnation, fully, fully 
deserving of his judgment. And yet, God, he has fully welcomed you into his family. And how did he establish this relationship? Look there at the end of verse 5. Verse 5. Through Jesus Christ. Meaning that because of what Jesus did, because of the price he paid, because of the sacrifice he made, it is through that that you're adopted. Adoptions aren't cheap. And when we were adopting our youngest son, we were trying so hard to save money. <laughs> I mean, I painted a house. We, we were having garage sales. We were doing fundraisers. We were doing all sorts of stuff. And I will say to you, however, that the reason we were able to was mainly because of generous people in our lives who just gave. And there will come a day when I will sit him down and I will say, son, it was through the gift and the sacrifice of these people that we were able to adopt you. They paid the price. They made the sacrifice by which we were able to make you our son. Love was the motivation, but they made it possible. And Christ has made your salvation possible. And again, this was all according to God's plan. Look there again, verses 5 and 6. This was all according to the purpose of His will. Notice the end goal. To the praise of His glorious grace. That's why He did it. With which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So He chose you for salvation. He adopted you as children. Third, He redeemed you from sin. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The word redemption there, very simply, it refers to a liberation of freedom through the payment of a price. A liberation of freedom through the payment of a price. Very simply, someone was a slave. And someone else came along and paid the price to redeem, to purchase, to buy, to set free that slave from slavery. And Paul says, our redemption in Christ means we have been set free from our sin. Look again, verse 7. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sin. We're slaves to sin. We're in bondage to sin. We stood condemned before God because of our sin. There was nothing we could do to liberate ourselves. No, we were hopeless and helpless in our guilt of sin before God. You see, beloved, the Protestant Reformation, it was mainly, listen, it was mainly a controversy with the Roman Catholic Church about just how helpless and guilty we really are. That's, that's really what the core issue was. That's why Luther said that his, his book, in his dispute with Erasmus, the bondage of the will was the most important work he ever wrote because our wills are bound to sin. We're enslaved. And just how helpless and guilty were we? Here's what I know to be true of every single person in this room apart from Christ. Here's just how helpless and guilty we are apart from divine intervention. 
The Bible says we are cut off from God. We are hostile toward him. We're doing evil deeds, Colossians chapter 1. We're enslaved to our sin, Romans chapter 6. We're condemned as God's enemy, Romans chapter 5. We're caught in the snare of the devil, 2 Timothy 2. We're children of our father, the devil, John chapter 8. We're dead in our sin, sons of disobedience, children of God's wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. Our understanding was darkened, our hearts were hardened, we were spiritually lifeless, we were destined for hell and eternal wrath, we were free to choose according to our sinful nature, so we chose freely to run headlong away from God and toward hell, and we could not come to Jesus unless God drew us to him, John chapter 6, that was you, apart from Christ. But in verse 7, notice... Christ has redeemed us. He set us free. And we've been liberated, notice, through the blood of Jesus. He says we have redemption through his blood. Meaning, it was through the death of Christ in our place, on our behalf, as our substitute, there was this mountain of guilt heaped up against us. But if you are in Christ... God has pardoned that guilt, he has canceled that debt, he has forgiven your sins, and your sins will never be counted against you because they were counted against Christ. And he's redeemed you. He set us free. And it was all the riches of his grace. He's redeemed you from sin. Fourth, he enlightened you with understanding. He enlightened you with understanding. Look at verses 8 to 10. In other words, though we were once spiritually darkened, though we were once blind to the truth because of our sin, in Christ now, God has given you the ability to understand and embrace spiritual realities. Spiritual truth. Look there, verse 8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom, and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What has God lavished upon us? Verse 8. Some want to connect this prepositional phrase with verse 7, the riches of his grace, but that's why verse 8, I think, begins where it does. No, what God has lavished upon you, Christian, now in Christ, is all wisdom and insight. Wisdom and insight into what? Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will. You see, prior to our conversion, we were spiritually blind. We didn't have eyes to see. We, we, were, we were incapable of understanding and discerning spiritual truths. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, Satan has, had blinded our minds to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We didn't have spiritual eyes to see. 
We were darkened in our understanding of truth, darkened in our understanding of God and his gospel. We were blind. But look at verse 8. God in Christ has now lavished upon us all wisdom and insight, meaning he sovereignly opened your eyes to see. And what has he enabled you to see? Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. That word mystery there, don't be confused, means something once hidden, now revealed. Once hidden, now revealed. In other words, God's will, his eternal plan for the universe was once hidden. But now, in our salvation, he's given us an inside look to that plan. And what was that plan in verse 10? To sum up everything in Jesus Christ. Verse 10, to unite all things in him, meaning everything in subjection to Christ. That's the destiny and the goal of the entire cosmos. It is to unite all things under the headship of Jesus Christ, and God has made that known to you. Imagine your favorite band or your favorite artist is giving out backstage passes. You get to go backstage, you get to meet the band, you get to hear a, a preview of a few songs, you get to see the set list, maybe you know what's the encore, you know what the finale is, and you get selected out of a whole group of thousands upon thousands of people, you. And you realize what a profound grace it is to let you have an inside look. And beloved, in Christ, God has given you an inside look into the design and the goal of the entire universe that one day all things will be summed up in Christ. And he chose you to see it. You get to see it. Now. Praise be to God. Fifth, he appointed you as an heir. He appointed you as an heir. Look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there's that word again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we have obtained an inheritance, Paul says, as those adopted now into God's family, now made heirs, an inheritance from God. And this inheritance, friend, listen, it isn't money. It isn't, it isn't houses. It isn't possessions. No, no, this is a, a heavenly inheritance. Peter describes it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds a lot like Ephesians 1. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Listen, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So, beloved, the, the inheritance that Paul is describing here and that Peter is describing are referring to your full enjoyment of fellowship with God, life eternal in heaven, 
where pain and suffering are no more, ultimate glory forevermore in the presence of Jesus. That's awaiting you, believer. And look at verse 11. Notice this, though. In him we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained it. Now, how have we already obtained what's still future? And the reason Paul can say that is because he is so sure that it could, it could not possibly fail to happen that he's speaking as if it's already happened. We have obtained it. It's as if you're already there. It's a done deal. It's settled. It is a divine certainty. In fact, look at verse 11. Paul grounds the certainty of this inheritance in both God's work of predestination and providence. Predestination and providence. Look at verse 11. Why have we already obtained this? Why is it a divine certainty? Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. This is God's predestination in the past. And, notice verse 11, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That's God's providence now in the present. Meaning God made a plan in eternity past and He will see to it that that plan comes to pass through his providence in the present. So, the inheritance of our salvation is as secure as God is sovereign. The inheritance that you will receive is as secure as God is sovereign. It will happen. It can't fail. And again, look at verse 12, the end result of this, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Soli Deo Gloria. He appointed you as heirs, which leads now to our sixth and final blessing. He chose you in salvation. He adopted you as children. He redeemed you from sin. He enlightened you with understanding. He appointed you as heirs. Now sixth and finally, He sealed you with His Spirit. Verses 13 and 14, look there. In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The main idea comes here at the end of verse 13. Look there. That those who have heard the gospel in a saving way those who have believed in Christ, Paul says, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, sealed, what does that mean? What does it mean to seal something? Well, in ancient times, a seal was oftentimes a ring that would be pressed into wax. It was kind of like a, a brand. It was a mark indicating ownership. And so it was designed so that it guaranteed that the owner would remain in possession of it. So it was marked. It was sealed. I, I'm, I'm a book lover, you might say. In fact, I've got so many books that I don't even know oftentimes what I have. It's pathetic. I, I have a personalized seal that I put at the bottom right-hand corner of the title page 
of every book that says, from the library of Joshua T. York. It places my seal of ownership on that book. Why? Well, because I loan out books. I often don't know where they go. And I maintain possession of that book. And beloved, at the moment of your salvation, God put his seal. God put his mark on you. He put his stamp of ownership, which indicates you belong to me. And Paul says that seal is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Look there, verse 13. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Spirit not only equips and empowers you to live the Christian life, but He marks you off as God's possession. And in verse 14, He is the guarantee. He is the pledge. He is the down payment of this, given to protect you, given to preserve you, given to maintain possession of you. And if you are a Christian, God has set His seal upon you for all of eternity. You cannot fall away. You cannot be lost. He will keep you and you will persevere to the end. And so notice, just notice, the bookends here of this poem of praise. Verse 4, you were chosen for eternity. Verse 14, now you're sealed for eternity. Chosen and sealed. And beloved, this is owing only to the sovereign grace of God, to the praise of His glory, verse 14. Soli Deo Gloria, glory be to God alone. And He's done it all from beginning to end. You see now how your salvation in Christ gives all glory to God alone. So then what is our response? I mean, if it's, if it's God's work, we do nothing, then what do we do? Here it is. Number one, we believe. We believe. Verse 13, this sealing, this sealing, God's ownership of you, is only for those who believe. heard the gospel and believed. Is that you? Have you believed? Listen, God's sovereign choice of you does not cancel out the fact that you must believe. Repent and believe. We believe. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. We have assurance. Because our salvation begins with God, because it is accomplished by God, because He started it, and he promises to finish it, it should give you great assurance. He chose you, he adopted you, he redeemed you, he enlightened you, he has given you an inheritance and he sealed you. Third, it makes us humble. Friends, soli deo gloria should humble you. That the infinitely glorious God would choose you. He would send Christ to redeem you. And why did he do it? It wasn't because of anything in you. But simply because in eternity past, according to his good pleasure, he chose to set his saving grace on you. We believe, we have assurance, 
It makes us humble. And then fourth and finally, it should lead us to praise. It should lead us to worship. It should lead us to glory in God alone. That's the goal of it all. So that you would see Him and treasure Him as infinitely glorious and be able to say for all of eternity, glory be to God alone. Let's do that now. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.